Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, welcome to it. Welcome to it. The Bible Geek. Uh, I'm your uh, host, Robert M. Price. Robert M. Price. Host of The Bible Geek. of Israel, and of course this was a pseudomograph, uh, he didn't write it, there's the incarnation of God, why in the specific, just an amazing book, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, host the Bible Geek, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, Christ, host the Bible Geek, Bible Geek time with your host, Robert M. Price. I'd like to uh, tell you about all kinds of stuff, but you've probably heard it before, and I want to get right into the questions. Uh, haven't done a geek in a little bit because I've been so busy with other things, uh, and uh, but I want to cover some ground today. So, uh, what do we got here? Well, here's a question from Luther. He says, I'm just finishing Walter Bauer's Orthodoxy and Heresy in Earliest Christianity, and it inspired two questions. Uh, but first, I want to thank you for having recommended it. Yeah, it is a great book. One, in the chapter Asia Minor, prior to Ignatius, Bauer says, The catastrophe in Palestine forever erased the demands that Gentile Christians of the diaspora should be circumcised and should, to some extent, observe the ceremonial law. Fellowship between Jewish and Gentile Christians in the outside world became really possible. Obviously, the decimation of Jews in Palestine would reduce the number of Jewish Christians, but was it really so consequential and immediate an event to erase that line? Weren't there still Ebionites, for instance, in Egypt, or presumably um, other Jewish Christians elsewhere? Uh, yeah, that uh, that's certainly the case. It took a while for Jewish Christianity to die out, uh, but... Um, I uh, get the impression Bauer is saying that the center of gravity of Jewish Christianity had to have been Palestine because of the centrality of Jerusalem and the Jerusalem pillars and all that stuff, and uh, that without that anchor, it uh, became easier for uh, for Jewish diaspora Christians to get along with and to uh, eat with and trade with and socialize with uh, Gentiles and in general and uh, Gentile Christians um, and uh, it, it's uh, I mean the whole idea of the 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 distinctive I should say of the diaspora Jews and I think it would hold true for diaspora Jewish Christians too 
is uh, assimilation, that you're living among people whom, who are not persecuting you uh, and uh, who, who you would ordinarily get along with. And uh, these, the various kosher laws, etc., would uh, form a, uh, an impediment to that. Gee, I'm sorry, but I can't come over to the pig picking at your house, uh, uh, Glutamus, but uh, thanks for the invite. Well, uh, they, uh, th- they didn't really have Big Brother looking over their shoulder any longer. I-, I think that's what he means, and as far as I know, that's true. Um, it-, it certainly did begin to decline. Uh, Jerusalem itself, once it was rebuilt, uh, it had uh, Gentile Christian bishops and all of that. So uh, that was a... Uh, uh, a real uh, problem for Jewish Christianity. It did hang on for a good while, but the very fact that it gets names like uh, Nazareans and Ebionites and Elkasites and so on, uh, kind of actually in a in a strange way makes uh, Bauer's point stronger because it's it implies that there's that these groups are more sectarian more isolated uh, and of course that's only going to happen if they're on the defensive if if um, assimilation to Gentile paganism or Gentile Christianity becomes uh, it, it becomes more uh, likely uh, easier to do and all of that if you uh, don't have uh, the uh, the the uh, central authority and so you got to really double down hunker down in in a sect that is more uh, in tension with the outside world than uh, than uh, it used to be uh, let's see uh, luther says obviously the decimation of jews no, I already read that part, sorry. Okay, second question. I do not ask this in order to tear down Bauer or act like a tear-down-the-statues kind of liberal, but I honestly want to understand this passage. In the chapter, The Beginnings, Bauer... Uh, or at least in this translation, says Rome was by nature and custom least inclined or able to yield to seemingly fantastic oriental ways of thinking and oriental emotions that becloud clear thought. Oriental ways of thinking and emotions that becloud clear thought? Is this just racism, or is Bauer saying something I just don't understand? Again, the brilliance of the book for me doesn't hang on whether Bauer said something our modern ears don't accept. I'm just curious whether I'm misunderstanding his point, or whether indeed he's just a bit racist. Uh, I'll be honest, my late grandmother, sweet as she was, said worse, and she was 50 years younger than Bauer. Uh, well, I, uh, I've read the passage again now, and uh, I don't get the impression he's talking about racial differences so much as, as customs, uh, habits of mind, and of types of religious celebrations. Uh, there were certain, certainly Oriental uh, religious believers of different kinds in Rome, but there was a lot. But that's that's really how you know that uh, the uh, institutions of Rome were against that sort of thing. I mean, they tended to tolerate.
tolerate them, but uh, often ridicule them. Um, in his advice to the bride and groom, Polycarp in the second century uh, advises uh, young uh, wives to uh, n- to stick with the conventional deities that their husbands. Uh, worship, and he can assume that's the case because, of course, the, the he's talking about uh, people that have official positions in Rome or at least uh, live according to them. Uh, their their wives don't have as much to do in the public life, and uh, women have historically been more attracted to uh, enthusiasms. And, and this is not sexism; it's just the uh, uh, the, the historical fact. Uh, in fact, it, it seems to me to understand that fact uh, more completely, you need to recognize that it implies that uh, women had imagination and uh, at least the, the Roman matrons had leisure and they did creative stuff. So it's it's not like you're saying they're lunatics or anything, though some of their husbands did because they, it seemed kind of wacky to them. Uh, let me give you um, an idea about this from uh, the sixth satire of Juvenal. And... Uh, this is it's a long work and this is really uh scathing toward women in a kind of caricaturing way but what i'm i mean to point out here is how he ridicules uh the uh women's uh, infatuation with what uh, i guess we would call cults okay so uh, he says uh, now in comes a procession, devotees of the frenzied Bellana and Sibylle, mother of gods, led by a giant eunuch, the idol of his lesser companions in obscenity. Long ago, with a shard, he sliced off his genitals. That's what they did. They emulated uh, Attis. Uh, now neither the howling rabble nor the kettle drums can outshriek him. His plebeian cheeks are framed in a Phrygian mitre. This, uh, the religion of Attis and Zabili was from Phrygia. Uh, with awesome utterance, he bids her, the, the housewife, the real housewives of Rome, he bids her beware of September and its shirakos, unless, that is, she lays out a hundred eggs for purificatory rites and makes him a present of some old clothes, russet-colored, so that any calamity, however sudden or frightful, may pass into the garments, a package deal expiation valid for twelve whole months. In winter she'll break the ice, descend into the river, and thrice before noon let the eddies of the Tiber close over her timorous head. Then crawl out naked, trembling, and shuffle on bleeding knees by way of penance across the field of Mars. Indeed, if white Io so orders, she'll make a pilgrimage to the ends of Egypt. Fetch water from tropic Meroe for the aspersion of Isis's temple that stands beside those ancient sheep pens. The public polling booths, uh, the sheep pens, the public polling booths. She believes that she's summoned by the voice of the lady herself. 
Isis, just the sort of rare mind and spirit, no doubt, that a god would choose to talk to in the small hours. That's why high praise and special honors go to her dog-headed colleague, Anubis, who runs through the streets with a shaven, painted crew dressed in linen robes and mocks the people's grief for Osiris. He it is who intercedes for wives who fail to abstain from sex on the prescribed and ritual days, exacting huge penalties when the marriage bed is polluted or when the silver serpent appears to nod. His tears and professional mutterings, after Osiris has been bribed with a fat goose and some sacrificial cake, will guarantee absolution. No sooner has he pushed off than a palsied Jewess parking her hay box outside, comes round soliciting alms in a breathy whisper. She knows and can interpret the laws of Jerusalem, a high priestess under the trees, a faithful mediator of heaven on earth. She too fills her palm, but more sparingly. Jews will sell you whatever dreams you like for a few small coppers. Then there are fortune-tellers, Armenians, Syrians, who pry out the steaming lungs of a pigeon, predict a young lover for the lady, or a good fat inheritance from some childless millionaire. They'll probe a chicken's bosom, unravel the guts of a puppy, sometimes they even slaughter a child. The seer can always turn informer on his client." Chaldean astrologers will inspire more confidence. Their every pronouncement is a straight tip, clients believe, from the oracular fountain of Ammon. Now that Delphi has fallen silent, the human race is condemned to murky unknowing of what the future may bring. The most successful have been exiled on several occasions, like you-know-who with his venal friendship and rigged predictions who settled the hash of that, of that great citizen dreaded by Otho, one of the Caesars. Uh, nothing boosts your diviner's credit so much as a lengthy spell in the glass house with fetters jangly, jangling from either wrist. No one believes in his powers unless he's dodged, uh, dodged execution by a hair's breadth and contrived to get himself deported to some cycladic island like Seraphos and to escape after lengthy pr privations. Um, your wife, your Tanaquil, is forever consulting such folk, and so on and so on. Um, uh, there's a lot more of it. I think that's the kind of thing Bauer is referring to, that there's this entrenched, even institutional skepticism toward novel oriental religions. That, again, doesn't mean that uh, no one in Rome was attracted. Indeed, they were, which is, once again, how you know that the dominant class was again it. Uh, and um, so I think that's uh, what's what's happening there. He's talking about uh, the the ethos of a particular long-standing civilization. I don't think he's saying Easterners are wackier than Westerners. 
Um, but anyhow, I'm glad you're enjoying Bauer. He's great. Uh, Lodher says, In the Pauline epistles, many statements are tied together by words such as if, for, and thus. Uh, it looks as if he's trying to construct logical arguments, but the statements are often non sequiturs. You know, one doesn't follow from the other. Uh, why do his writings have the trappings of rationality, but not the substance? Was he genuinely trying to argue rationally according to the standards of his time, but perhaps unable to realize it was nonsense? Was he trying to pull a fast one, as some modern evangelicals and apologists seem to? Uh, do the words... Um, uh, in Greek, differ significantly from their modern English translations. Could the confusing jumble of ideas be indicators of rampant interpolations and redaction? Uh, any suggestions on how to read through these and the rest of the Bible without becoming frustrated and tempted to use the pages for kindling? Um, I uh, think you're... I find the, the whole idea of the non-sequiturs denoting, uh, you might say, redactional seams, um, jumping from one thing to another illogically, that could be. Um, but uh, I think it, it's uh, partly ancient reasoning. Uh, for instance, Paul will say, well, so-and-so can't be right, because after all, Scripture says... And, of course, today we would um, reject that as an appeal to authority fallacy, right? And, like, why is he introducing this? Like, early on in Romans, you got this this uh, statement that everybody is uh, sinful and, and doomed outside of Christ. And how do we know humanity is that bad off? Well, listen to this. And he gives you a whole bunch of uh lines out of different psalms quoted grossly out of context well he's just uh, that's that's the way uh, the ancients often read these things out of context and so if it suits his purposes the phrase itself is uh, good enough i mean it's it's kind of like the extreme example that's really kind of a joke i'm sure you've heard it where somebody says hey the bible says there is no god well it does but it's a little different if you look at the context which says the fool has said in his heart there is no god as emily latella used to say on weekend update oh that's rather different <laughs> you bet it is uh, but sometimes that's what's going on uh, there are other times where uh, you have uh, rules of interpretation of scripture that that are quite rational, like the uh, from greater to lesser. Uh, if you're dealing with a question that is not explicitly addressed in scripture, um, you you might find that you read the rest of scripture and find out, well, here is an analogous but more important case where the same principle obtains. And uh, if it applies in the greater case, presumably it ought to in the lesser. That, that's a famous uh, Greek 
uh, hermeneutical uh, device, uh, but wherever it's from, uh, that that is certainly logical, and the same thing uh, in reverse. But uh, sometimes uh, we would recognize uh, log logical cogency, sometimes not, because it has to do with what they thought was a valid warrant for a conclusion, and you might think uh, something is when it's not, uh, or when an outsider would not find it cogent. But he is trying to be um, like a popular philosopher. The diatribe, I think Bultmann did his doctoral dissertation on the use of the, di the Stoic diatribe in the Pauline epistles, and this is where you, you've said something and then you say, now I know what you're going to say. Uh, you're going to object uh, this way, but let me explain to you how you're wrong and I'm right. Or, but someone will say, so you're anticipating objections and, and getting them out of the way. Well, yeah, that's a classic, uh, style of the Stoic philosophers, and he does that. It's just that sometimes uh, what he thinks is proof, we wouldn't. Uh, like, well, well, in Galatians, how about that, where he says, uh, remember in Genesis, God says to Abraham, I will uh, multiply your seed, your descendants, obviously, but it's a collective singular, and so uh, Paul is trying to say, well, the promise wasn't uh, uh, just to Abraham's offspring in general, but a literal singular, Jesus. He's the seed, a particular descendant. Come on. That, that seems pretty, uh, pretty fast and loose. But that brings up another aspect of this. As uh, E.P. Sanders makes very clear in a great uh, book of his, um, Paul, the Law and the Jewish People, Paul is is reasoning backward from results. Uh, he has something he's that he believes on who knows what basis, uh, but uh, he is trying to uh, show you who have not had that revelation or that dream or whatever. He's he's trying to show you how uh, how you ought to believe it too, and, and here's why. But it's it's just reasoning backwards, and and apologists do this all the time. I think that is the the essence of the apologetical endeavor. You're starting with conclusions and then trying to reverse engineer arguments. Uh, are they going to get to where you want to get? Well, if so, they're good. If if they don't, well, they got to be wrong because we already know the conclusion is true. By faith, hallelujah. So I think that's going on a good bit. I'm I think that's a really good book by Sanders, Paul, The Law and the Jewish People. Yeah, okay. Uh, Daniel Davis says, Your esteemed geekiness. I've had the pleasure of having your wisdom and wit fill many hours that otherwise would have been filled with naught but mindless drudgery, laboring at work. Thank you for that. At some point in my life, the joy of curling up with a stack of comic books along with prerequisite cheese popcorn and Tahitian treat soda was joined by the joy of biblical studies and coffee, but still with a cheesy popcorn. I still love both of these indulgences, um, although neither provides much in the realm of real-world benefit. 
Uh, they are both uh, simply fascinating and fun. I recently encountered the series of biblical lectures offered by the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson and was taken by his view that ancient texts, and the Bible in particular, offer the most reliable and genuine information regarding human psychology um, by virtue of their early composition. His view seems to be that these writings represent maps of meaning that illuminate the processes by which we evolved consciousness and culture. Of course, I agree as far as it goes, but I wonder if the thesis that the biblical heritage could reach so far back as to be identified as primordial, which seems to be his contention, is viable. While Peterson might like to identify these ancient stories uh, to the beginnings of human consciousness, listening to his lectures with a critical eye garnered from your podcast, I was taken aback by how often he appears to accept the text as if we're given wholly without reference, um, the text as if we're given wholly without referencing any modern criticism regarding the date or unorthodox meanings. I believe you share with me the conviction that the Bible is interesting largely because of its antiquity and what light it sheds on nearly prehistoric peoples. How far do you think this idea can be taken? And do you think Peterson is on to something when he says that the Judeo-Christian tradition is exceptional among religions in preserving the wisdom uh, of uh, the wisdom that nature or God has written into us through evolution. I don't really buy it. I, I was uh, listening to uh, uh, one of his interminable lectures ostensibly on the Bible. Now, I like Peterson. Uh, I like the uh, the uh, his his uh, crusade on behalf of sanity uh, in in so many areas. But I I his uh, his approach to the Bible strikes me as very unsophisticated and uh, if for instance he like if he psychologizes the text as we sometimes say he's talking about the story uh, in uh, Genesis 4 where Cain offers vegetables he's a farmer he offers that as a sacrifice to God and is rejected uh, and uh, then Abel his brother a shepherd offers a meat sacrifice and God accepts it. And then God uh, catches up with Cain and says, uh, why are you, why is your nose out of joint, Cain? Uh, if you do well, you, you will be commended, right? So, you know, what's the problem? Well, it doesn't say uh, what the problem was with offering vegetable versus meat sacrifices. Uh, that's, that's a fascinating question, but uh, Peterson doesn't deal with that. Uh, he, uh, he is interested in uh, the fact that Cain is stewing about this um, disappointing experience, and he goes, he, he uses uh, Peterson uses that as a launching pad to say how resentment uh, will um, eat you up eventually. It's going to warp and distort you, uh, and so you shouldn't uh, dwell on that and, and dwell in it and so on. I, I personally don't see what an appeal to the Bible does uh, to, to make that clearer or to uh, uh, 
back up his assertion? I mean, he's a psychologist. He he certainly learned from of classes and readings of psychologists and from his own observation of people that uh, resentment is an unhealthy thing to carry around with you. And in fact, you can have Buddhist, uh, there are Buddhist texts, um, I think of the Dhammapada, for instance, that make exactly this point in a theoretical and, um, and, much clearer way. Uh, it's the the Genesis story. Nothing wrong with it, but it's just um, depicting a character who has a uh, a common uh, problem that any reader will recognize. Uh, and I, I I just don't. This is not some unique teaching from the Bible, nor is it the preservation of some kind of root archaic human instinct. Uh, it, it just seems to me he's proof texting the Bible, using it as a diving board uh, to make points that you, you don't need the Bible for. Uh, I mean, it, it's no great glory of the Bible that it happens to mention this. Another example that I, I don't know if he uses or not, but uh, also in Genesis, when um, uh, when uh, Abraham uh, is looking forward to having a, a son as an heir, and uh, he's real old, and his wife is too, and so naturally nothing's happening on that front, uh, but God promises him, uh, you will uh, have descendants, and, and so on. Uh, and so he, he kind of loses faith, and well, Sarah does, his wife, and says, look, nothing, uh, no sign of any uh, uh, baby on the way, tell you what, so we will have an heir. Why don't you uh, try to impregnate my maid, Hagar? Uh, th this is a common thing in the ancient world. If uh, if either the woman was barren, the, the husband could take on a concubine or marry a second wife. But, of course, there's a price tag to that. You're, uh, and this is what's depicted in the story. Uh, Hagar does quickly get pregnant and becomes uppity. Uh, she's um, uh, bragging to Sarah, hey, you couldn't have a kid, but I got one in the oven. Ha! Uh, and uh, she can't, uh, Sarah can't stand this and says to Abraham, kick this bitch out of here. And and she henpecks him about it. And he says, okay, okay. And he kicks her out. But God sends an angel to uh, rescue her and so on. What is, does that story teach about the dangers of uh, of concubinage and, and or polygamy or anything? Not exactly. I mean, it's uh, it, it just, uh, again, any reader would recognize what's going on because this is a danger that anybody in the situation faces. And they uh, the reader would uh, would uh, sort of nod knowingly. Yeah, wouldn't you know it? Uh, and, and of course, the idea is that this just shows what a bad idea it was. Abraham and Sarah should have had faith and, and not invited this kind of trouble. Um, so... Uh, is that a unique biblical insight? No, the whole point is that it isn't, uh, that anybody would know and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what happens, all right. Uh, and and I th think to, to quote something like this as if the appearance of a common truism in the Bible makes it true, like uh, 
rubbing Aladdin's lamp and getting truth out of it. I, I just it just seems to me. Uh, in fact, I have a problems with Jungian readings of the Bible also, because I love Jung, no question about that. But uh, when you say, well, here's so-and-so archetype in the Bible that you also find in the Grail stories and the Odyssey, well, what do you use in the Bible for? It's just fodder for the theory of archetypes. It's not really, I mean, you're, you're really interested in the archetypes, not the Bible. Uh, the Bible is speaking in a common way. In fact, that's kind of the whole point of the archetype, right? So I think often the the Bible is being, this reminds me of the previous question, is this a warrant for anything? Any exhortation of behavior or something? I, I don't see it. Uh, so I, you know, I got problems there too. I mean, there's no reason uh, Jordan Peterson should be uh, interested in biblical criticism. Uh, what he's doing is probably uh, more important to uh, life in the real world. But uh, when he gets into that, I, I just can't help but uh, have my opinion of it. Soon I'm going to be uh, participating in some uh, some sort of a podcast, or no, YouTube, uh, a series of YouTube dialogues with uh, my good friend of many years, Catherine McCall, Farrington McCall, or is it McCall Farrington? I guess it's the latter. Uh, she runs a, an organization in uh, the UK promoting philosophical dialogue with children to train them in critical thinking, and she's quite interested in Peterson, so we're going to be discussing this on uh, on those uh, those YouTube uh, programs. I'll let you know when I know more about it. Hmm, let's see. Uh, Jason Gertzen. In a recent Bible Geek, you responded to a listener's question about Mark's mention of Pilate's surprise at Jesus' quick death. You suggested the possibility that it was a layer covering over an earlier version wherein Jesus did not actually die on the cross. Is this possibility compatible with mythicism? It seems to me that if Jesus started as a dying and rising heavenly being, the earliest euhamerizing versions of the story would include a death and resurrection, just like their earlier mythical source material. What other possibilities am I not considering? Well, there are various routes to um, Christianity in general and to Jesus as a savior and a, a superhero uh, and uh, that have come together. And the, I think the death and resurrection of Jesus does come from the uh, the rituals of the dying and rising gods and uh, one spiritual transformation by uh, tapping into those myths, into the victory of the god by means of a ritual reenactment. But uh, of course, uh, there were there were other things going on in uh, hero worship cults. Uh, I guess there were literal cults where people worship these guys, which is not that hard to uh, to understand, given the way uh, m musicians and movie actors are lionized in our society. And over in India, there, there are some movie stars that are actually worshipped. Uh, what's the difference, really? I mean, the way sports celebrities can do no wrong, right? That's, that's the hero cultism of a sort. Well, 
there are various Hellenistic novels uh, over several centuries, actually, uh, right around the uh, the time of the New Testament, in which uh, a hero is condemned to death, specifically to crucifixion, uh, and is uh, delivered from it. Uh, either he's rescued at the last minute, or um, he's... Uh, released just on the verge of being crucified or or in one case um strong winds uproot the cross which is on the a precipice and sends it down into the water and somehow the crucified man is able to escape it's it's a repeated theme and uh the the idea is not some sort of atonement doctrine like the mystery religions dying and rising gods are but rather th- simply the literary device of the darkness before the dawn uh as uh, larry norman saying you j- just can't, just can't keep a good man down uh, they what is it? They nailed him to the cross. They uh, laid him in the ground. But so and so, you can't keep a good man down. It's been too long since I've listened to that album. But yeah, it's uh, and and I kind of suspect that there were a lot of Christians that viewed the Jesus story that way. You'd think uh, that you had to count him out, but no, uh, you can't uh, get rid of him that easily. And he, he came back like very much like Apollonius of Tyana. Uh, they, his disciples had given him up for dead because he was uh, giving a defense speech before Domitian, who wanted him dead, and then uh, uh, vanished out of the courtroom and reappeared uh, hundreds of miles away among his disciples who thought he was dead and coming up from from Hades to say goodbye. And he says, no, 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 I, I didn't die. I eluded the reaper, and here I am. Don't think I'm a ghost here. Touch me. You can see it's uh, I have flesh and, and blood and so on, just like Luke 24. It's uh, so. It, this is in the air too, and it seems to me very likely that uh, there were Christians who heard such stories, uh, weren't that inclined to go the mystery route, and interpreted Jesus that way. So I think there are a lot of things that are contributing to it. Plus, there may, as Burton Mack has said, there we can kind of trace hints of different Jesus movements and Christ cults that eventually merged. And I deal with this in my early book, Deconstructing Jesus. You might want to take a look at that. But I, I think that uh, these things are not rival theories and now, it, it, what would be a rival th- uh, theory that would be incompatible with mythicism would be if you said Jesus really was crucified and survived. It was called the old swoon theory, right? Because you're you're granting that there was a historical Jesus there. Now that would be in, incompatible with mythicism. Uh, but my version of it is that this was a version of the Jesus story. Uh, which may well have been just as fictive, as fictional as these other ones from the ancient uh, Hellenistic world. Oh, let's see. How long is this next one? Okay, Martin Gatt, our artist friend from uh, uh, from Malta. 
I remember from last from uh, summer of last year reading the infancy gospel of James, uh, sometimes called the Protevangelion of James, I don't know why, uh, for the first time, and what struck me most was the hilarious tone of this piece of art, especially when recounting the moment of Jesus' birth. A midwife questioning Mary's virginity inserts her hand in there to check the claim for herself. An angel moments later comes back uh, sorry, comes for the res comes to the rescue by suggesting uh, that she hold the newborn infant, and in fact they do recover back. I'm not. Does that mean that uh, the one the midwife had penetrated the the hymen, but uh, the uh, angel restored it? I'm not sure. But also, a particular characteristic grabbed my uh, attention. As Joseph goes searching for a midwife in the vicinity of Bethlehem, Mary starts going into labor inside the cave, the Holy of Holies in the temple. Uh, and when they do arrive, what they see first is a cloud covering the cave, uh, which later disappears. Bright light shines forth and is and as if by magic, a la David Copperfield, the baby Jesus comes out of nowhere, already walking on feet to reach Mary and suckle milk from her. Is this reminiscent of the Exodus epic tale of the first mini-temple with God residing over it during the day in the form of a cloud, or more appropriately, God is literally inside the cloud? Does Christ here come Come down directly from above rather than being born in the womb? If that's the case, then the two implications scream aloud. Jesus is a theophany of Yahweh, being the Son of the Most High, a la Margaret Barker, and you know, the father being Elion, and he is also docetic. Beside all this, uh, it was impressively revealing for me to learn that this was the actual source from which Christmas traditions we Catholics, well, I used to be, but not anymore, inherited about Joseph being depicted as an old man, something that always fascinated me uh, back from childhood, uh, coming uh, coming. Uh, uh, along with statues and pictures of Joseph. Uh, and the brothers mentioned in the Gospels actually turn out to be stepbrothers from a previous wife, and Jesus is born in a cave. As Christmas approached, I decided to display these themes from the book of James in art myself, and actually what I intended to convey was a mashup of different traditions, something many devout artists display without knowledge of getting into such a confusion. The themes are drawn from the aforementioned tale, the cave, and also from the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Yeah, I saw those uh, those uh, drawings uh, on uh, Facebook. Facebook and and commented on them. They're they're really good and um, very appropriate stylistically to these ancient works. Well, uh, the uh, the cloud resting over the the cave where Jesus was born that could very well be um, an intentional allusion to the Shekinah glory cloud in the temple of Solomon. I, I wouldn't be at all surprised, but the 
it it could, I think, and does uh, refer to the cave in Bethlehem. I mean, early Christians did believe that it was a cave, and in fact, St. Jerome lived in, no, or was it, uh, or was it Origen? Oh my gosh, I'm not sure. Uh, but one of the early church fathers lived in it because it was supposed to be the uh, cave of the nativity. Uh, but e- even so, that would still be like a, a kind of a substitute or a symbol for the temple. Uh, the idea that uh, Jesus is born directly from heaven. Uh, I, let me read you something I just wrote um, in an article that uh, should appear in um a uh, one of John Loftus's um, anthologies of articles. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm talking about the virgin birth here, and uh, ooh, let me just find this. I don't think it would come in handy this soon. Um, okay. Mm. Schleiermacher and the Virgin Birth. Uh, yeah. Uh, Angel of the Lord. Um, 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 Docetism. Um, yeah, it's a, a subtitle Miraculous Misconceptions. Um, oh boy, wait a minute. Um, yeah, okay. Miraculous conception produced two types of offspring. To borrow a Hindu term, there were avatars, uh, literally descents, that is from heaven, gods who visited the earth by way of a woman's womb. Krishna was an avatar of Vishnu. Apollonius of Tyana was Proteus in illusory human form. Gautama Buddha, in Mahayana belief, descended from the Tushita heaven through the womb of his mother, quote-unquote, Maya, hint, hint. Avatars were the same beings on earth they had been in heaven. When they appeared among mortals, it was exactly analogous to Kal-El, Superman, arriving on Earth in a rocket from the planet Krypton. As uh, As in the case of the Buddha, their seemingly physical form was an illusion, a nirmankaya, or transformation body. The spiritually enlightened could see through to the sambhogkaya, or enjoyment body, the celestial superhuman body. Similarly, Krishna reveals his true form to Arjuna. Behold my forms, son of Pritha, by hundreds and by thousands of various sorts, marvelous, of various colors and shapes. Here the whole world united behold today with moving and unmoving things. In my body, Gudakesa, and what, whatsoever else thou wishest to see. But thou canst not see me with this same eye of thine own. I give thee a super natural eye. Behold my mystic power as God. 
this would add up, I think, to a type of theophany, just a longer-lasting one, decades in duration. That is why avatars can be depicted even as children, like Jesus in the infancy gospels of Matthew and Thomas, as possessing more wisdom and knowledge than the dull-witted adults among whom they are temporarily uh, stranded. How long am I to be with you? How long must I put up with you? Mark 9. 19. The other variety of divinely conceived hero is a demigod or half-god. The demigod is half-human. Though a virginal conception is usually contrasted with adoptionism, the bestowal of divine power and dignity upon a worthy adult, I venture to suggest that the demigod is a variation on the theme of adoptionism. Adoptionism is directly derived from the royal ideology of Israel and Judah and the adjacent Middle Eastern monarchies. Upon enthronement, each new king became the anointed son of God, Psalm 2, verses 1 and 7, and could even be addressed as God, Psalm 45, 6. He was not supposed to have descended to earth from heaven. He received divine honors by virtue of his position. Likewise, Jesus is adopted son of God as at his baptism, Mark 1, 9 through 11, Luke 3, 321 through 22 margin you are my son today i have begotten you uh, some supposed he had received divine sonship at his resurrection acts 236 romans 134 again it is pretty much irrelevant when the divine adoption occurs. In the case of, the, of a miraculously conceived demigod, it happens in the womb. The child is an augmented human, augmented to the same degree as Jesus as of the Jordan baptism. Uh, what does this uh, information tell us about Jesus and how the categories of incarnation and virgin birth apply to him. I take very seriously Margaret Barker's theory that Jesus was first, or very early, understood to have been an Old Testament-style theophany of Yahweh. Uh, Barker demonstrates to my satisfaction that early Christians, including Gnostics, never accepted the Deuteronomic revisionist theology, which had sought to to merge the ancient father and son deities, El Elyon, God Most High, that is, ruler of a pantheon, and Yahweh, see Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, which differentiates them, into a single God. When Jesus spoke of and to his father, he was Yahweh addressing El Elyon. Note that Jesus is called Son of God, Elohim, but never Son of the Lord, that is, of Yahweh, because he was Yahweh. Would this make Jesus Christ a divine incarnation? Not as Christian tradition defines it. Remember, I've suggested that the older conception of theophanies assumed Yahweh took on a bodily form capable of eating and sexual intercourse, but it looks to me as if Jesus was understood on the second secondary model as a docetic theophany. Uh, going to the Gospel of John, stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're right. It does imply that Jesus was a, uh, a theophany, and that would apply whether he entered uh, the world through Mary's womb or not, um, because he, he is a preexistent God in these stories. So he's uh, 
he he I think Matthew and Luke probably considered him a demigod, but in uh, in John he's uh, he's uh, a, a pure theophany. Okay, well let's see. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to end right there. I'm uh, getting a little uh, a little tired here. But I thank you for being with me on The Bible Geek. Keep sending those questions in, and I will do my best to uh, endeavor to answer them. Uh, and uh, there'll be a new human Bible soon for those of you who are Patreon supporters. So, see you soon. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.